you guys have your Bibles, thank you, Timothy. Um, go ahead and turn to Philippians. As you guys know, we are starting a study in the book of Philippians. And so turn there with me to Philippians chapter 1. <coughs> On my desk at home, there is a stack of 200 and some thank you cards um, for our wedding guests. And we've probably got, my wife and I, Bree, uh, we've probably gotten through about like 20 of them. Um, the rest are still blank, and the reason for that is like we've just been slacking, we've been, pr been procrastinating. Um, I don't know if you've ever had to write a lot of thank you cards at once, right? Like cards for a lot of people at one time. Uh, you kind of run out of things to say, right? So like what we've kind of defaulted to is, dear so-and-so, thank you for celebrating with us uh, at our wedding. Thank you for blank, like insert gift here. Um, yeah, see you later or something like that. And so we, we have to, I guess we've only written that 20 times, but we're going to write that 200 times, 200 times. Well, when the Apostle Paul sits down to write a thank you card, you end up with the book of Philippians. And he's inspired, I'm not, so I guess that's what happens. Um, but that is the occasion of this letter. Paul's letter to the Philippians is a thank you note to the Christians in Philippi for a gift that they had sent uh, via this guy named Epaphroditus to Paul to support him in his ministry. Uh, if you guys flip real quick to Philippians 4.18, this is near the end of the book. Um, Paul says, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So basically Paul says, thank you guys for the gift. I've received it um, from Epaphroditus. Appreciate it. Right. So that's the occasion for the letter. Um, Philippi was one of the major cities in this region that was called Macedonia in Bible times. It's, it's currently modern-day Greece. Um, Paul, he visited the city in about 80, 49, or 50. He founded the church there, and Philippians was probably written about 10 years or so after, after that, around 60, 61, 80. And so what happened was upon receiving this gift from Epaphroditus and probably an update about how things were in the life of the church, Paul writes this letter, Philippians, to thank them for their gift and to encourage them in their faith. Okay, that's the context of Philippians. And for tonight, we'll be looking at Philippians 1, uh, just the first 11 verses. And here in this section, we have uh, what is very typical uh, of many of Paul's letters, we have the greeting in verses 1 to 2, we have the thanksgiving, verses 3 to 8, and we have uh, a prayer in verses 9 to 11. And it's, it's a very conventional way to begin many of Paul's letters. Um, in our passage, uh, I think it serves as a prologue of sorts, uh, in the sense that a, a good prologue introduces us to key themes that are going to come up like over and over again in the rest of the letter. Um, what I usually like to do when we start a new study is I like to introduce some of those key themes, but I think what Paul does in our passage actually is he does that for us. Okay, so let's look at our passage tonight. We'll be looking at chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Uh, let me read that for us, and then I will pray. Philippians 1, starting in verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, 
making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion of the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let's pray together. Father, now as we look into your word, as we study um, just what genuine Christian community and fellowship looks like, um, God, I pray that this would not just be a familiar truth to us, one that we think that we know, um, but something that we would really consider um, and help us to respond humbly and with a teachable heart to your word now. We thank you, God. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let me start with a question, and it's this. What is your experience of Christian community? What is your experience of Christian community? Maybe for some of you, you are new to Christianity, um, let alone Christian community, and so this whole concept of uh, like community, Christian community, is a bit wacky to you. Okay, never before have you been part of this group that is so concerned with your personal life, that asks such probing questions. And so maybe for you, it's like a bit uncomfortable. It's a bit weird. Like you want people just to back off a little bit. Um, or maybe for you, Christian community is one of several communities, right? You have your academic community, you have your social group, and then you have your Christian community, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe for others of you, Christian community is something that is absent in your life. And that could be for a number of reasons. Uh, maybe you've given up on Christian community. Like you've been disappointed or you've been let down. Uh, you've been un not welcomed or you've even been sinned against in a really significant way. And so maybe you feel bitterness or you, or you feel disappointment and it's just something that you've given up on. For others of you, Christian community is all that you know. For you, it's like, why just fellowship on Wednesday nights when you can fellowship seven days a week, 24 hours a day? So you live with Christians, you eat with Christians, you go to class with Christians, um, you do everything with Christians. And for you, it's like, I don't even know what to think about it because like, I breathe Christian community. It's like asking a fish what it thinks of water. That's, that's how it is for you. All you know is Christian community. You're surrounded by Christians. Or maybe this is you. The whole idea of Christian community is similar to uh, like eating your vegetables or taking your vitamins, right? Like it, it doesn't always taste good. Um, it's not always pleasant, uh, but you know that you're supposed to be in it, and so you do it. Um, I don't know if you guys have ever experienced this, but like sometimes you're happy when someone that you're supposed to meet up with like cancels on you, right? Because it's like you did your part, but then they cancel, so you can just chill and watch Netflix at home or something like that. And I think this particular point, especially in college, is something that's emphasized a lot, right? We, like, last week I said the very, the, that exact thing. I said, don't neglect community, right? Don't forget about it. You need it. It's a part of your spiritual health. Uh, and that's true, but it's certainly, not, it's, it's certainly not less than that 
but it is so much more than that. Right? It is so much more than, uh, than a necessity in the, same way that, in the same way that vegetables are a necessity for your diet. Uh, when you look in our passage, I don't think that's what Paul would say about Christian community. It's something that you just need. See, when you look at our passage, I think it's clear that what marks Paul's experience of Christian community, if you were to ask him that question, what is your experience? I think he would use words like mutual fondness and thanksgiving. I think he would say it's an experience of profound joy. It's a kind of joy in the gospel and in one another that is untouched by his circumstances, is untouched by loss. Um, It's untouched by anything external. I think he would say that, yeah, I love the believers at Philippi and they love me. And when you read this passage, maybe this this happened for you, like their affection for each other just jumps off the page, right? It's, It's so evident in the things that Paul says about these Philippian believers. And so let me ask you, is that your experience of Christian community? Is it one of fond affection and profound joy? Is that your experience? And if it's not, then how do we get there? How do we get there? I think Paul answers that question for us tonight um, as we examine Paul and the Philippians' love for one another. Um, I have four points for us, kind of just four aspects, um, four marks, I think, of their relationship with one another. It helps us get to that point where the Christian community brings us profound joy. So let's start with the first one. Uh, number one is it is rooted in gospel identity. Rooted in gospel identity. Look at verse one. Paul writes, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so two identities I want to point out. Uh, from, from these verses. First, speaking of himself and Timothy, Paul identifies themselves as servants of Christ Jesus. Servants of Christ Jesus. The word there for servant, um, some of you might know, is doulos. Right? It's one of those Greek buzzwords, the kind that you get tattooed um, on your arm or something like that. That might be too real. Um, it can be translated as bond servant or slave. Um, those in Paul's day were familiar with slavery, and so they would have understood this point that Paul is trying to make, that being a slave, being a bondservant, a doulos, means that you belong to someone else. Right? As a slave, you belong to someone else. Slaves are owned by the master of their household. And so who is it that, that Paul belongs to? Well, he says that we are servants of Christ Jesus. Servants of Christ Jesus. And at first, it's it's like, well, duh, right? Of course, we're servants of Christ Jesus. That's like the Sunday school answer. Um, that reminds me of the Avengers, like Doctor Strange. You guys know that line? It's like, what master do you serve? Best line in the movie. Um, but think about what, what, what Paul, where Paul is as he's writing this. He is locked up in a Roman prison. He is shackled in chains. He is subject to the guards, the government, and to Caesar. And anyone looking at his situation would think to themselves, well, well, Paul, it looks like you're a slave, not to Jesus, you're a slave to Caesar. You are bound to whatever he wants to do with you. And yet Paul says, no, I am a slave of Christ. Paul says, I am a servant of Christ. I belong to him and nobody else. And we're going to see, I think, as we move throughout this letter, that it is this sort of attitude 
that I'm not bound to my circumstances, I'm not subject to what's happening in my life, but only Jesus owns me. It's that kind of attitude, I think, that allows Paul to know and to experience the kind of joy that he experiences. Okay, so first, we are servants of Christ Jesus. We belong to him. But second, speaking of the Christians at Philippi, Paul says that they are saints in Christ Jesus. Saints in Christ Jesus. Now, unfortunately, the word saints, um, I think, has taken a meaning that is different from that of the New Testament. For you, when you think of the word saint, maybe you think of exceptionally godly people, like uh, your sweet little grandmother, or the church fathers with those circle things around their heads, um, or Pastor Tim. Um, (laughs) But the word in scripture simply means holy ones. It it doesn't describe some sort of like spiritual achievement. It describes an identity and a status that has been given by God to every believer. That word holy there, uh, all it means is set apart. Set apart, called out by God. Paul continues, he says that we are saints before God because we have been identified with Christ Jesus. We are in Christ Jesus. We've been united with him so that his righteousness becomes our righteousness. Um, In Colossians 3, Paul describes it by saying that Christ is our life, right? That our life is hidden in him. We are identified with him. You are in Christ Jesus if you are a believer And that is your spiritual address. Keep reading. He says, in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. Do you see that? To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. If in Christ Jesus is your spiritual address, then at Philippi is your physical address. You're in Christ at Philippi. Uh, God has called you to and placed you in this specific context and specific circumstances and uh, a community for the sake of the gospel. In Christ at Philippi. The problem, I think, is when we get that backwards. I know that uh, within this group, there are many different commonalities. There are many different things that we bond over uh, between some of you, whether that's school or major or interest or personality, or the list goes on and on. But get this, your first and your most important identity is in Christ. You are in Christ at UCLA. You are in Christ at USC. You are in Christ at Cal State Long Beach or whatever campus you are at. So as you think about that, let me ask you, in what ways might you be promoting your other identities over and above your identity in Christ? Right? In what ways have you maybe even unintentionally been excluding others because you've been promoting this other identity that you have? Right? Think about your conversations. Think about your um, even inside jokes, which I think are funny and good, but uh, in what ways is that promoting like this one identity that you have over and above your identity in Christ? In what ways have you uh, allowed these other identities to become the standard for who you choose to welcome in your fellowship? Okay, that's the first mark, I think, of uh, their relationship with each other. It is rooted in gospel identity. Second, it is full of gospel affection. Full of gospel affection. Verse 3. Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. 
And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you with how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Now, if you're a little confused after reading uh, those verses, that's okay because I think you should be in some sense because um, Paul uses like a bunch of phrases and, and like even commentators have a hard time knowing what modifies what. Okay, and it's even more confusing in the Greek because that's not always clear. Like, is, is Paul talking about his remembrance of the Philippians or the Philippians' remembrance of him? Um, it's not super clear. But either way, I think it's hard to miss Paul's point here. That he is not being thoughtlessly repetitive. He is being deliberately emphatic. And this is, his, this is what is super clear, I think, that Paul has a deep affection for the Philippians. He has a deep affection for them. And just, like, look at how many different ways he puts it. In case you didn't get it the first time, right? He says, verse 7, it's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. Let me say that again, verse 8. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Um, I, my pastor back home, uh, he's kind of younger. Uh, and he, he took over the English ministry a few years back. And I went to a Chinese church, and so... Uh, if you know anything about a Chinese church, like it takes a while for kind of the older people to start to respect the younger people. And, and so uh, something he would do every Sunday from the pulpit is he would tell the congregation, I love you more than you know. I love you more than you know. He would say that every single week um, just to show them, like, this is my heart for you guys. Even if I might not have your respect right now, even like if I don't have your credibility or, or whatever, I love you more than you know. And I think that's what Paul is saying here that I love you more than you know. This is my affection for you guys. He says in verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Can you say that about your own life? That I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Are you thankful um, for your brothers and sisters in Christ? And can you say that you are thankful for all of them? Not like I'm thankful for these people and I kind of tolerate these kind of people. You know, but look at what Paul says. Paul says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. I think he's doing a play, a play on words there. I'm thankful for all of you all the time. And I think the problem with us is that we often feel uh, more entitled than we do grateful, right? Especially when it comes to other people. We think like, you know, like why aren't people reaching out to me? Why aren't people welcoming me? I'm new at this church. Why aren't people recognizing the things that I'm doing? I'm serving um, in, in so many different ways. Let me say this to you. If you want to grow in a love for others, if you want to have this kind of relationship, this fellowship um, that we see here, then maybe just start by thanking God for them. And just start by thanking God for the people in your life if you, if you want to grow in a love for them. And let's flip that. Do you make it easier? Um, do you make it easy for other people to be thankful for you? Is it easy for people to be thankful for your life? Um, let's be honest. I think some of the most unpleasant people to be around, like some of the, the hardest people to love, are those who are ungrateful, right? And I don't. Maybe that's you. And it's like, you know, like why doesn't anyone appreciate you? And well, I, I think the answer is like you just complain all the time. It's it's like not fun being around you. 
right? So is, are you, do you make it easy for other people to be thankful for you? I think Paul's thankfulness here challenges us to practice thankfulness in our own lives. That, that Paul and the Philippians' mutual affection for one another springs out of this deep thankfulness for each other. <coughs> well, here in this passage, um, Paul's gospel affection specifically overflows and expresses itself in his praying for them. Okay, so he says, I, I love you guys, and this is how I love you guys. I pray for you all the time. And I want to point out two things about his prayer. First, his prayers for the Philippians are consistent. They are consistent. Um, he says, always in every prayer of mine. He says, I pray for all of you all the time. Every time that I think of you, I thank God for you. You know one way that you can know who's been praying for you? Uh, it's if they remember your prayer requests. Right? If uh, they ask you about them. Why? Because that means that they've been talking to God about your prayer requests. See, I think Paul's remembrance here isn't like this kind of like, who is that person again? Like, what, what's his name again? Or what's her name again? I think Paul remembers them just as this like natural overflow of their mutual commitment a mutual commitment to the gospel and their fond affection for one another. In other words, he can't help but remember them when he thinks about the gospel. That's the first thing. His prayers are constant. And second, his prayers for the Philippians are joyful. His prayers for the Philippians are joyful. You see that he says, um, making my prayer with joy. Making my prayer with joy. Now this is a theme that's going to come up um, over and over again in the book of Philippians. Philippians has been called the epistle of joy. The words joy and rejoicing, uh, they come up 16 times in 104 verses. So it's a lot. It comes up uh, quite often. It's a major theme in this book. But I think what we're going to see throughout this letter is that for Paul, joy isn't the result of finding himself in comfortable circumstances. Joy is in seeing the gospel make progress through his circumstances. Let me say that again. Joy isn't the result of finding himself in comfortable circumstances, but of seeing the gospel make progress through his circumstances. Even if that means being in prison, even if that means enduring affliction, all of those things, his circumstances cannot touch his joy because he is most concerned about the progress of the gospel. So he makes his prayer with joy. I think if you keep reading, he gives us two reasons for Paul's joy. First is this. First reason for his joy is because of the Philippians' partnership in the gospel. You see that in verse 5. He says, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, we mentioned how Philippians is a thank you letter um, for their gift to Paul. But realize that this wasn't just this like one-time one-time deal. Like what we have here, I think, in Philippians is just one instance. It's just one snapshot of this lifelong partnership between Paul and this church. And we're going to get into this in the next point. Um, but for now, Paul rejoices because of the Philippians' commitment to him and to the gospel. Okay, so that's the first reason, because of their partnership in the gospel. The second reason for Paul's joy is because of his confidence that God uh, will keep working in their lives. His confidence that God will keep working in their lives. That's in verse 6. 
He says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now, I know this is one of the many beloved verses in Philippians, um, but here I, I think it's helpful that we get to see it in its context, right? What is he saying? Well, Paul says that the Philippians' practical assistance to him, right, their gift of money to him, what it's doing it's its confirmation, it's evidence that God is at work in their lives. Okay, their practical assistance, their gift to him was evidence, it was confirmation that God was working in their lives and that is reason for joy for Paul. In other words, the thing that was worth celebrating the most about the Philippians' gesture to him wasn't just that it met his temporary physical needs or even, just, or even that it encouraged him in his gospel ministry. The thing that was worth celebrating the most about the Philippians' gift to Paul was that it was evidence of God's work in their life. And it is a work that we see here that God promises that he will bring to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That is Paul's greatest joy. It is evidence of God's work in their lives. See, when Paul writes about uh, the first day until now, or he, when he writes about the good work that God had began in the Philippians, I think he would have thought about the very beginnings of the church. And by the providence of God, it's actually recorded for us in scripture. Um, you guys can turn to Acts chapter 16. <coughs> I won't actually be reading passage, but you guys can kind of follow along with me. I'll be summarizing it. Acts chapter 16, verses 6 to 40. <coughs> in this passage, we get the origin story of the Philippian church. So let me just summarize it for you. You can kind of try to find your place. Paul ends up going to Philippi because he is forbidden by the Holy Spirit to go to Asia. Okay, he, he gets this vision of a man from Macedonia and this, this vision tells him, come over to Macedonia, help us. Okay, so he and his partners, they go over there. On the Sabbath day, it says that they went outside the gate to the riverside there, where there was a gathering of women for a place of prayer. Okay, so get that. Paul gets a vision of a man from Macedonia. He gets there, and for whatever reason, whether because there weren't enough men, Jewish men in the city to form a synagogue or whatever, but he's led to this gathering of women. And they're praying together, and there Paul preaches the gospel, and one of the people there is this lady named Lydia. If you look there, it says that Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So God opens Lydia's heart, she gets saved, and the first thing she, she does when she gets saved is she opens her home as a meeting place for the church. Verse 16, on the way there, on the way to that place of prayer, it says that they come across this spirit-possessed girl. So Paul, he casts the spirit out of the girl. Her owners, who have been making a fortune off of uh, kind of her fortune-telling abilities, they get mad because, you know, that, there goes their, their money-making business. And so they get Paul and Silas thrown in prison. They get beaten um, and they get thrown in prison. Verse 25, in prison, Paul and Silas, they're praying, they're singing hymns. Suddenly, there's an earthquake that opens up all the doors, and the jailer there who is kind of watching everything, um, he sees all this happen. He realized, oh, it's off with my head if like all these prisoners get away. And so he's about to kill himself until verse 30, um, Paul and Silas, they stop him, and he asks them this question. He says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? 
How do I get saved? What must I do to be saved? And so they preach the gospel to him. He receives the gospel. He says, you know what? Preach the gospel to my family. They take Paul, Silas, go to his home where the rest of them, they receive the gospel, they get baptized. This is how the Philippian church started. You have this lady named Lydia, opens up her home. You have this like suicidal parole officer that hears the gospel, gets saved, and his family. And we don't know if this spirit-possessed girl ever turns uh, to receive Christ, but maybe even a spirit-possessed girl. Right? This is the origin story of the Philippian church. And as Paul thinks about all of that in the past, the first day, he looks now where they are now, right? how, they be, how they have become so sacrificially committed to him and the gospel in the present. It gives him confidence for what God will do and what he will finish in the future. Paul says, when I look at your lives, Philippians, I see God's fingerprints all over it. Paul says, when I look at this panorama of grace in your lives, right, past, present, confidence for the future, Paul realizes this is so much bigger than this single snapshot of suffering in my life. See, I think for us, whenever we're going through something difficult in our lives, at least for most of us, we feel like we need to let it be known, right? Like we need to, to make that the most important thing about our lives. And it, like, it needs to be the most important thing for other people too, right? Like they need to hear about what's going on. Uh, we just expect and we demand people, like listen to what's happening, listen to how things are hard, and I want you to encourage me and I want you to counsel me. Even if I'm not gonna listen to any of it, like I still want you to encourage me and counsel me. We, we want people to care about us. And I think that's fine. That's a good thing, right, to be in community, to be vulnerable. But I think what Paul teaches us here is that one way that we gain freedom from the grip of our difficult circumstances, one way we are freed from its grip is that we celebrate what God is doing in other people's lives. Right? We celebrate their lives rather than our own. I like one, uh, what one pastor, or how he defined joy. He said that joy is not the absence of troubles. It is the presence of something greater in the midst of those troubles. It is not the absence of troubles. It is the presence of something greater in the midst of those troubles. And I think what Paul shows you here is one of those things that is greater is the testimony of God in the lives of other people around us. Right? Let that encourage you in your snapshot of suffering. Number three, third mark is a commitment to gospel partnership. Commitment to gospel partnership. Um, and I get this from verse five and verse seven. If you look at verse five, Paul says, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. <coughs> and then verse seven, he says again, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers, that word there is related to partnership, partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in defense and confirmation of the gospel. The word for partnership in the Greek is koinonia. Koinonia, you guys might have heard that before, and it's, uh, it can be translated as fellowship. And much like the word saints we talked about earlier, I think the word fellowship has also taken a different meaning in our culture than what we see in scripture. 
For us, fellowship just means being with other Christians. Even if it just means literally standing in a circle in the fellowship hall um, after service on Sunday. If you are, um, you know, like grabbing coffee with your friend who's not a Christian, and you tell them, well, yeah, have a good time hanging out with your friend, right? But if you get coffee with your, you know, your brother or sister in Christ, and it's like, oh, have a good time fellowshipping with them, right? That's how we, we think about fellowship. It's just being with other believers, But I think a more biblical understanding of fellowship has to do with sharing together in something. Sharing together in something. Um, D.A. Carson defines it in this way. I think this is good. He says, The heart of true fellowship is a self-sacrificing conformity to a shared vision of that which is of transcendent importance. The heart of of true fellowship is self-sacrificing conformity to a shared vision of that which is of transcendent importance. That word koinonia, or partnership, actually communicates the idea of business partners. Okay, like you're making an investment. You have some money in the game. There's a cost to it. And this was literally true for the Philippians. You see, even from the very beginning, Um, If you look through scripture, we see that they were very, very eager to give money or any financial assistance or resources. They were very eager to give in any way that they could. If you guys flip to Philippians 4, uh, verse 15, real quick. Paul says, when I left Macedonia, so Philippi's in Macedonia, right? When I left you guys, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only, Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. So from the very beginning, they've been supporting him. They've been just giving their money to Paul to to encourage him and to help him in his ministry. Um, Even a a little bit later, Paul goes on uh, what is his third missionary journey. And part of his goal on this third missionary journey is he's going to go around to these Gentile Gentile churches. And he's trying to collect an offering to bring to the church in Jerusalem. Okay, and this is kind of like gospel significance, demonstration kind of thing. Um, but Paul actually doesn't choose to ask the Philippians to give because they've been so generous to him already. But in 2 Corinthians 8, 1 to 5, we learn that they give anyways. And they actually gave out of their poverty. Paul says, in, uh, Paul says this, he says that they gave out of their abundance of joy and out of the, their extreme poverty has overflowed into a wealth of generosity on their part. But even, they were, even though they didn't have much, they were so eager to give. And I said, you know, like Paul wasn't going to ask them to bur- so as not to burden them, but he says in verse 4, 2 Corinthians 8, 4, he says, they begged him earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief in the saints. Even though you didn't ask me, we want to help you out. Uh, Philippians 4.10, if you look at that verse, he's, Paul says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you had revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. What is he talking about? Well, in Jerusalem, Paul gets imprisoned. Okay, and like, he kinda, you kind of lose track of him a little bit because he's in prison. No one knows where he is. Um, and somewhere in the meantime, he gets transferred to Rome. And so for a while, the Philippians didn't know where Paul was, but the, the minute that they, they had that opportunity again, right, they were eager to revive their concern for him. That's what Paul is talking about in 4 verse 10. As soon as that opportunity came up again, they're like, Paul, we want to support you right away. 
And so in their partnership with Paul, the Philippian believers were joyfully sacrificial. They were eager to help at the next opportunity. And Paul says, you guys stood by me, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. And so let me ask you, when it comes to your Christian community, your brothers and sisters in Christ, what marks your gospel partnerships with one another? Is it commitment or is it consumer? Right? Are, you, are you committed or are you a consumer? Do you duck out when your own resources are short or when there are too many things on your schedule or when you just don't feel like being around other people? Or are you invested in one another? Right? Are you like eager to help at the next available opportunity? Guys, let me encourage you to seek intentionality with each other in your relationships. And I know that's a word that's thrown around a lot in college, like be intentional. Um, but realize this, don't just, like, don't just settle for, oh, we're chill with each other, or like we're friends, we get along, or we have a good time when we're with each other. Because think about it, what is that going to do for you? Like what is chill going to do for you? What is like, we have fun going to do for you when something difficult comes up in your life? Right? When suffering comes up in your life, what is that going to do for you if you just chill with each other? We gotta be committed to each other. We have to be invested in each other. We have to be ready to help at the next available opportunity. And that's what the Philippians and Paul did with one another. They were committed to their gospel partnership. Last thing here, number four. Hope for gospel progress. Hope for gospel progress. Verse nine. (coughs) Paul writes, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And so in verses 9 to 11, Paul, uh, he gets to the actual content of his prayer for the Philippians. What does he pray for them? He tells us, he says, I pray that your love may abound more and more. Pray that your love may abound more and more. He describes this love for us as a love that is marked by knowledge and discernment. It's a love that results in the fruit of righteousness that, uh, to the praise and the glory of God. That's what he prays for the Philippians. And what I want you to take away from Paul's prayer here is that Paul prays that they would continue to grow, they would continue to mature. He prays for gospel progress. Now, I think these verses are instructive for us on the nature of prayer. Um, why must we pray? I think there are different answers to that question, right? Why do we pray? Well, because God tells us to, uh, because prayer is powerful. But I think the an- one answer that Paul gives us from this passage is the reason that we pray, the reason that w- prayer is necessary, is because God has started a work in us that isn't done yet. Right? That's one reason why we pray, because God has started a work in us and in other people that he hasn't completed yet. And so it requires our prayers. It's a work that we can be confident of, but it is a work that requires us to pray and to participate in it. These verses remind us that what God is doing in us and in other believers is an unfinished work. Prayer for growth and maturity and love and knowledge and discernment and wisdom is necessary because we all need to grow in those things, right? If, if we have arrived at, you know, like 
the perfect kind of love, if we have arrived at just perfect discernment, then why would Paul need to pray these things for believers? I think realizing this helps us to be realistic when it comes to what, uh, what to expect from Christian community. There is no perfect Christian community. And yet we are in it and we hope for and we, we desire other people's spiritual progress. So it's an unfinished work, but it is a work that God will finish. It's a, God, it's a work that God will finish. And so I think these verses teach us to be forward-looking. It teaches us to place a hope in and to desire gospel progress in the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ. I think that that plays out in in many different ways. Um, John Newton, he was uh, a pastor. uh, He wrote a letter um, to another pastor uh, who was about to criticize uh, someone else. So he's going to bring up something that this other believer uh, was doing wrong. And so this is his advice to that pastor. And I think it's so helpful for us. This is what it looks like to be forward-looking, to hope for someone's spiritual progress. He writes this. He says, If you account him a believer, though greatly mistaken in the subject of debate between you, deal gently with him for my sake. The Lord loves him and bears with him. Therefore, you must not despise him or treat him harshly. The Lord bears with you likewise and expects that you should show tenderness to others from a sense of the much forgiveness you need yourself. Now listen to this part. In a little while, you will meet in heaven. And he will then be dearer to you than the nearest friend you have upon earth is to you now. Anticipate that period in your thoughts and though you may find it necessary to oppose his errors, view him personally as a kindred soul with whom you are to be happy in Christ forever. Right? That's a picture of what it, what it looks like to be forward-looking. Right? To, to realize that there's this unfinished work going on in the lives of our brothers and sisters. To be patient, to bear with other people's shortcomings, to be patient with our own, and yet to hope and to to look forward to that one day where all of us will be perfect in community with one another. Right? That's what he says. In a little while, you will meet in heaven, and he will then be dearer to you than the nearest friend you have upon earth is to you now. And just think about that for a second. So we are to view him as a kindred soul, someone you are to be happy in Christ forever. As, as I went through this um, passage this week, uh, this was my prayer for you guys, right? that, that you would grow in uh, understanding your gospel identity, that you would grow in your affections for one another, um, that you would grow in your commitment to one another. You'd be willing to sacrifice. You'd be willing to do things that you, you wouldn't otherwise choose to do yourself for the sake of one another and that you would be forward-looking. You would be hoping uh, and, and helping each other towards gospel progress. And I hope that's your desire as well. Right? Not just because like, that's what we should be doing, but because of the joy that comes from it. Right, I hope that my hope for you guys and just that what would characterize our ministry is that our affection for each other, like, like the, the affection between Paul and the Philippians, would just jump off the page. It would be so obvious to those who see us. And so do you desire that? 
Right? Do, you, do you desire that? Is that the experience that you want in Christian community? And my prayer is we would remember these four things. We'd work on these, and we would look forward to the joy that, we can, uh, that can be found in, in just loving one another and being committed to the gospel together. Let's pray towards that end. Father, we thank you for the gospel that it brings um, all of us together, though we might have our differences, though um, you might even have uh, things that we hold against each other, and it might be difficult to get along uh, at some points, but um, God, we know that uh, you've brought us together and that uh, you call us uh, to live in joyful gospel community. And so, Father, I pray that we would really take this to heart, that this wouldn't just be something that we know and so don't apply, but uh, really that we would think um, seriously and humbly and selflessly through how we can apply this in our life. How we as a ministry, as Beacon, uh, can be moving towards this point. How we can be marked by just this profound joy and affection for one another. We pray that that would be uh, to the praise and the glory of Christ. So God, we thank you for your word, which instructs us. We pray for our small group time now, that it would be uh, a sweet time of fellowship, encouragement. We thank you, God. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.